Well, good singing, Fox Valley Church. Good morning. Did you bring one of these today? If you have your Bible or a Bible app, let me just encourage you, urge you to open up to Romans chapter 6. And as you are going there, man, we missed you guys. We missed you guys. It is great to be back. For those of you who don't know me, Fox Valley Church is my home church. And when we first stumbled into Fox Valley Church, I don't know, maybe back in like 1992, 93, I was young and reformed. And now I'm just reformed. When we first walked into Fox Valley Church, I was uh, ruggedly handsome, and now I'm just rugged. Is that fair, George Kelly? Is that fair? I mean, when I came in, I didn't just have hair. You know what I mean? Like, I had a quaff. And now, let's just say I'm not spending a lot of money on product these days, right? When I first came to Fox Valley Church, I wrestled with sin. And you know what? I still wrestle with sin. On a daily basis, my heart sings, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Martin Luther said it this way. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. I have a lot that I need to repent of on a daily basis. You have a lot that you need to repent of on a daily basis. And which one of us, as we're following Christ, doesn't want and long for that change in our lives? And maybe there's like this just this one sin that keeps tripping us up. Maybe it's the disordered affections of our heart. We desire someone or something, and God has said, no, that's not for you. And we, we wrestle, and, and maybe it's a wrestling even in our fantasy life, and we long for that repentance and change. Maybe it's envy. Somebody has something that you want. Maybe you like their hair better than the hair God gave you. But it just, it makes you bitter inside, and you long for that kind of change. Do you know what I'm talking about? Maybe it's, maybe it's our, the way we do social media. Hashtag gossip. Hashtag slander. Hashtag pugnaciousness. And we just, we just long for the change. And I got good news for you this morning, Fox Valley Church. God has change waiting for us. We do not have to let sin have victory over our lives. Do you believe that this morning? And do you believe that no matter how you came in this morning, you can walk out freer than you came in? Well, let me back that up with God's Word. If you're able to stand for a reading from God's Word, please do so. A little bit of context or background. We have seen that the power of the grace of God cancels the penalty of sin, which is death. But it begs a question, what about sin's power over our lives? Follow along with me, Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. 
How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also, Fox Valley Church, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I'm not done yet. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let me pray for our time. Father, We come to hear what you have to say this morning, and so Spirit of God, would you come and do the work of God through the Word of God in our lives this morning, in the name of Jesus Christ I pray, and amen. Well, this passage is really wrestling with one big question, which is this, can a justified person, that is a person who has been declared righteous by faith alone in Jesus Christ, can a justified person continue to live the way they lived before Jesus? That's the question. And the way that I want to sort of answer that question is by looking at two big hairy questions that the Apostle Paul raises for us. And so let's get it. Here's the first one. The big hairy question of grace. Do you see that in verse 1? In other words, shall we sin that grace may increase. And one thing as we're sort of moving into this passage today is like, well, where's this question coming from, Paul? And it's coming from the back end of chapter 5 in verse 20. In fact, let me read it for you. In chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So do you, do you see where he's getting this answer? Like, if my sin brought and multiplied super grace, why not just keep on sinning? And so that's the big hairy question that he's wrestling with this morning. And the short answer is this. No way. Meganoita. We are dead to sin. Now, I don't know about you guys, but... When I read the Apostle Paul, there's a get it, got it good thing going on in my mind. So I read this stuff, but it's so thick and so rich. Okay, I'm dead to sin. Get it. Got it? 
Not really. <laughs> because this is Paul. And I don't know if you read a lot of Paul, but Paul will hurt your brain. Isn't that true when you're reading through Romans? Like, oh, this stuff is so good, but my brain hurts. God will hurt your brain to help your heart. And, and that's what's kind of happening here in this passage of this morning. So we need to pull back and wrestle with the question, okay, dead to sin. Get it, got it, but what does it mean to be dead to sin? Well, sometimes it's helpful to talk about what it doesn't mean first. What it does not mean is that you and I will no longer want to sin. In fact, in a couple of weeks, Pastor Tom's going to be taking you guys on a tour of Romans chapter 7, and you're going to see that the struggle is real in the life of the Apostle Paul. So being dead to sin cannot mean that you no longer want to sin. Being dead to sin does not mean that Christians ought not to sin, which is, duh, like a Captain Obvious, right? Of course not. But what does it mean? Well, I think when Paul is talking about sin here, he's not just talking about individual acts of sin, but he's talking about sin as a power or a, or a ruler that seeks to dominate you and I in our Christian life. How do I know that? Because elsewhere in chapter 5, he uses reigning or dominance language. Sin reigns or rules over us. I'm just saying it this way. When Paul says we are dead to sin, what he's really saying is that sin is no longer the boss of you. And sin is no longer the boss of myself. But this begs a question. Like, when did this happen? Because we're still wrestling with sin in the Christian life. And that's where he goes from verses 3 down. Let me just read it for you. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Full stop. That's when it happened. And when he says, do you not know all of us who have been baptized, he's not thinking about Christians who have been baptized and Christians who have not been baptized. Because in the New Testament, it's unthinkable that a Christian wouldn't get baptized. So in other words, he's talking about, as Pastor Tom says, my pastor, all y'all, right? Every Christian, every believer died when Jesus died in a certain way. This baptism signifies a dying with Jesus, and when you are pulled up out of the water, it signifies being raised to life with Jesus. So what Paul is saying is that we are dead to sin because Jesus' death, in some mysterious way, before God, has become our death. And to what end? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that. If you're awake this morning, look at your neighbor and say, in order that. That's purpose. That's a purpose statement. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, we too might walk in newness of life. So what's the purpose of this? It's a new life and a new reality for us this morning. And notice what happens next in the passage. Because Jesus' death has, is our death, 
we live with a new reality. And so what Paul's going to do now is he's going to take us through some implications and then some imperatives. Let's look at some implications starting in verse 6. Here's an implication. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing or done away with so that sin or so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So what's Paul talking about? This is one of those places where my brain is starting to hurt a little bit. What is Paul talking about when he's talking about the old self or the old man? I think the best way that I could understand this is to say this. There's an old me and there's a new me reality. And because of the work that Christ has done on the cross, I'm no longer living in the old me reality. I'm living in the new me reality. That is what is real to me, and that therefore is to define how I ought to live. Do you see that? And so the old me had a way of looking at myself. The old me, the old man way of looking at myself, I would say this about me. I'm not perfect, but I'm a pretty good dude. The new me understands that I am way worse than I ever imagined I would be. But because of the work of Jesus Christ, I am way more loved and way more, expect, uh, way more uh, accepted than I could ever dare imagine. Did you see that? The old me reality, there were things I used to do with my body that were displeasing to God. And, and that's what Paul begins to talk about here when he talks about offering your bodies as instruments. You could translate it weapons, which means this is warfare. And you can offer your body to God for righteousness, or you can offer your body as sin, or to sin who will dominate you. Do you see what's kind of happening here? So he's, he's unpacking some of the implications of the old me and the new me. And then he talks about this body of sin. Do you see that in verse 6? We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. What is this body of sin? Well, let me just clarify a misunderstanding this morning that sometimes comes up through this. God likes the human body. Do you realize that? God is for your body. Matter matters to him, right? But... This body of sin was a way that sin would use us and dominate our bodies to commit sin in our lives. And in the new me reality, we do different things with our body. So in the new me reality, I say, Jesus, these hands are your hands. Jesus, this voice is your voice. This mind is your mind. This heart that beats in my chest is your heart. It's the new me reality that he is calling us to live in. And because of the new me reality, well, the Apostle Paul can say, now you've got to live differently. And so he swings from what we call the indicative to the imperative. So let me just explain that to you. The indicative is what is true by God's grace. And what is true by God's grace? Christ has died for our sins. And he rose to he rose from the grave on the third day. That's true, regardless of how you respond to it. That is a historical reality and truth. That is what is true by God's grace. 
And so what you'll see in the Apostle Paul is he will move from what is true by God's grace to now what we are to do by God's grace. And look at verse 12. That's where he goes. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. That's a command, not a suggestion. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Why? Verse 14. Because sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So let me ask a question this morning as you think about your own life and you think about the places where where you're wrestling with sin. What difference would it make in your life if you told the sin that you are most wrestling with, you're not the boss of me. You're dead to me. What if you told your porn habit, you're not the boss of me anymore. You, you don't get to dominate my life. Can you even imagine what it would be like to live without heaping doses of guilt and shame? What if you told your habit of angry outbursts and a loss of self-control, you're not the boss of me anymore. I don't have to listen to you anymore. Can you imagine not having to go back because, you know, you were raised from a household of yellers and you swore to yourself, you know, when I have kids, I'm going to do it differently. And then you're back to that angry outburst and you feel guilty about it, don't you? And you feel like you're holding your your family hostage, like they got to walk around on eggshells around you. Can you even imagine a different life? Because God is saying we can have a different life. What if you told your social media habit... You're not the boss of me. From now on, my Facebook page, my Instagram page is going to be used exclusively for telling people about Jesus and building them up instead of ripping them down. Do you see what's happening here? Paul is not saying that we will become sinless in this life. He's simply saying if we begin to live in the new me reality, we will sin less and have greater joy in our life. So that's the first big hairy question that he's wrestling with in this passage. Shall we sin that grace may increase? Short answer is no, by no means. Meganoita. But he's wrestling with another question here as well. I'm going to call it the big hairy law question. And what I want to do is read the rest of the chapter for us. So follow along with me, if you would. Romans 6, beginning in verse 15. Here's the second big hairy question. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? There it is again. Short answer, by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented Your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now, 
Present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to what? Sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. And the fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, just like we did before, we got a big hairy question in front of us. This isn't the big hairy grace question. This is the big hairy law question. And it's good to ask, well, where is he getting this from? And he's getting this from this idea that you and I are no longer under the law. And Paul most often uses the word law for the Mosaic law. You and I are no longer under the law of Moses. Stop there. Between me and my brother Tom, we know everything. And this question about not being under the law, that's one that Tom knows. So come back in a couple of weeks and he'll be able to answer that question for you. But I want to push the pause button on this for a moment. And I want to raise a question because I've got a lot of friends that I'm showing and telling the story of Jesus to. And and one of the roadblocks to faith in their life is they are convinced that the Bible condones slavery. And so as we're reading this, it's pretty obvious Paul is using slave language here. In fact, if you took time, you could underline or circle the words enslaved or slave or obey or obedient. And so a good question to wrestle with on the surface is why does Paul use slave language here, especially when it's potentially offensive. You do realize that that is how Paul even introduces himself in Romans chapter 1, right? Paul, the doulos, the slave of God. Why does he use language like that? Why does he use slave language to talk about a relationship with God? You ever wrestled with that? In her book, Confronting Christianity, Rebecca McLaughlin, I think, has a a very insightful thing in terms of wrestling with that question. Quote, Why was slave language so favored among early church leaders? First, to communicate utter belonging to Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says this, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And just as slaves do their master's work, Christians live to serve Jesus. Second, the slave title communicated the cost of following Jesus. Following Jesus is costly. But a third motivation for the apostles must surely have been the reality that many Christians were in fact slaves. And so hearing leaders refer to themselves in this way must have been sweet to the ears of first century Christians who were in bondage. Far from being subhuman possessions, they had equal status with the formal leaders of the church. Close quote. That's insightful. Why is Paul using slave language here to talk about our relationship with God and Jesus Christ? I think she's getting into it with this idea of, you're not your own. 
You belong to someone. You either belong to sin, which will dominate you, or you belong to God in Jesus Christ. But Paul also, Paul also knows something about our God, doesn't he? He knows that God can take the emblem of suffering and shame. What is that? That's the cross. And transform it into the greatest symbol of salvation. And he knows that God can then take a system of dehumanization and oppression, that's slavery, and transform it into a metaphor for the greatest freedom ever. Let's get back to Romans 6. I just wanted to give you that footnote. So he's wrestling with this big hairy question. Can I live however I want? And he says, by no means. And let me just sort of get us into the flow of the argument. It goes something like this. Even though we're no longer under the law, you, Christian, should not live in sin. Why? Well, because everybody serves someone, and you're a slave to the one that you serve. There's no neutrality here. The freedom you think you have, it's not there. Everyone serves someone. You're a slave to the one that you serve. And let me stop there and just think about this for a moment. Just kind of work this out. Everybody serves someone. If you serve power, power will control you. If you serve success, success will control and dominate your life. If you serve pleasure, pleasure will seek to dominate and control your life. That's Paul's point. Everybody serves someone. You've got to choose who you're going to serve. Are you going to serve sin and let that be the boss of your life? Or are you going to be a slave to God? And then what are the results of this? Well, if you live for sin, sin is going to bring heaping doses of shame and guilt. But if you live for God, you're going to become more like Jesus. That's sanctification. And in its end, you will reap eternal life. So I want to get practical this morning with the rest of my time. I want to talk about the crazy sin cycle. And I want to talk about how to kill it and how to break it this morning. So let me take you through the cycle. Temptation comes to you. It's not a sin yet. You're just tempted. And then the next thing that happens in that temptation is what I call a Jedi mind trick. Any Star Wars fans in here this morning? So you know that scene? These aren't the droids you're looking for. But instead of saying these aren't the droids you're looking for, you Jedi mind trick yourself. Entitlement. I deserve this. Pride. This is the last time. Never do this again. Or how many times have we thought this? Nobody's getting hurt. No one's ever going to find out. And then if you cave into that temptation, if you Jedi mind trick yourself, what happens in this crazy sin cycle is you sin. And then what happens? Most of us skip ahead to feeling guilty, but that's not true. You know what happens? Short-term pleasure. Isn't that what the power of sin is? Hey, if sin tasted like liver, lima bean, and peas, I would be sinless. 
But the power of sin is pleasure. And it delivers it to you in short-term doses. And then after that comes heaping doses of guilt and shame. God, I can't believe I did that. Or, again. And then what comes next? Very often, instead of going before God and confessing your sin, or instead of going to a brother or sister that you trust and letting them know what happens, you go into hiding and isolation. You think, I can't go to God right now. I told him I would never do it again, and I did it again. And so you sit in hiding and isolation for a good long while. Psalm 32, you can check it out. And then what happens? A temporary form of repentance. There's no plucking out. There's no drastic measures taken over the sin that defeated you. Even though it doesn't have to be the boss of your life anymore. And then you have a period where you're free from that and life is good again until temptation comes again. Isn't that true? Is this just my life or is this yours as well, right? We just get this cycle that, that we go through. So I want to get real practical this morning. How do we break that? How do we kill sin before it kills us? That's John Owen. John Owen, the great Puritan, said this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Let me give us some practical places. And you know where you got to break that cycle? Between the temptation and the Jedi mind trick. That's where you got to break the cycle. So let me just give a couple of very practical things as I bring this message to a close. How do you kill sin? Number one, get honest with yourself. What kind of honesty am I talking about? I mean like brutal honesty. Don't say you hate your sin if you're loving it. A good question to get honest with yourself, because we can be self-deceived is to say, how is this sin serving me? How is this sin functioning as a Jesus substitute in my life? What pleasure is it offering me on the short term? And then reckon yourself dead to sin as the boss of you and alive to Jesus Christ. But get honest. Do you really want to kill it? Can you even imagine your life without it? Get brutally honest with yourself. Step number two, get brutally honest with God. He knows already, doesn't he? And maybe the place of starting is, God, I love this way too much than I should. And God, I love this right now more than I love you. Oh, God, help me and change me. And then, trust God, right? Come to God as a sinner. That's confession lay it out before him and trust him he is faithful and righteous to forgive you first john chapter 1 verse 9 there is therefore now no condemnation for those who have put their trust in jesus christ romans 8 1 that's the new me reality of you sin does not have to be the boss of you how about this one psalm 51 verse 10 oh god create in me a clean heart you think he won't answer that prayer he longs to answer that prayer. Step one, get honest with yourself. Step two, get brutally honest before God. Step three, trust God. Step four, 
It's time to act. The Bible just calls it repentance. Are there things that need to be plucked out of your life? Men who struggle with porn, when are you going to pluck the damned phone out of your life? And I'm using the word damned in its theological sense. What needs to be plucked out of your life? You do that, you'll begin to gain victory. Who are you going to tell? Sin thrives in the dark. Tell someone, confess your sins to one another. James 5.16, you have no idea the freedom God has for you if you find a godly man or woman and say, hey, I just want to let you know this is what I'm wrestling with, this is what I'm struggling with. Pray for me, hold me accountable. They will. And then, you know what? Enjoy your relationship with God. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteousness. By them is your servant warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. There is great reward for you. So let me pull this message together. Everybody's serving someone. And then did you notice how it ends? Everyone goes somewhere forever. Let me say that again. Everyone goes somewhere forever. The life you're living right now, the decisions you're making right now, has you on an eternal trajectory that starts in this world and carries you over into the next world. Everyone goes somewhere forever. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, eternal life. Those are the two destinations. And if you're going to let sin be the boss of you and dominate you, let me just tell you, death always pays his wages in full. But there is the gift of God that leads to eternal life. And I want to say this as I close. If you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you have never gone before God and say, God, I've really blown it like my whole life. <laughs> I am trusting that Jesus on the cross paid the penalty for my sin to free me from the power of death, that his death is my death, that his resurrection is the defeat of my death. One day I'm going to dance on my grave. If you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, like what are you waiting for? You can walk out today freer than when you walked in. So as the band is coming up, let me pray. Father God, do what only you can do. You compare your word to the rains that fall down and they, they don't return empty-handed, God. They water the earth and replenish, replenish it and bring fruit. So, Father, I, I pray for those of us who are wrestling with sin, God, and thank you that we're waging war against it. God, help us if we don't. I pray, God, that we would consider ourselves dead to sin, that we would walk in a new life and in a new freedom. God, I pray for those who are here today and maybe they wonder if you're real and if this is true. I pray, God, that you would make yourself real to them. I pray, God, that they would bow their hearts even with the sound of my voice. Say, I believe. Jesus, you take all of my sins and I'll take all of your righteousness. You take all of my death. I'll take all of your life and I will pick up my cross and follow you. Father, let us walk out as we sing today freer people than we walked in. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray.